picking up where we left off and I guess picking up the pace a little bit. I think you guys are are getting the hang of this now. How are we looking at these cells? How are we going to classify these epithelium? So let's look at some stratified examples. So as the name suggests, we have more than two layers, right? And we're going to name those not on the most basal layer or the middle layer. We're going to name them after their most superficial or apical nucleated layer. So it's more than two layers, so it's stratified. And the shape of these cells at this surface is squamous. So this is a stratified squamous epithelium, non-keratinized version or wet. Okay. Again, this is often for protection or as a barrier. And we'll see it in the esophagus, that muscular tube, brings food to your stomach, lining the, the vaginal canal. Uh, keratinized stratified squamous on the surface of our skin. Um, or, again, we can see stratified squamous lining your oral cavity. So a couple of examples of that. Again, this is the wet version or non-keratinized version. It's the muscular tube. This is your lumen. This is your basement membrane attachment. We're not going to name it for these cells. We're going to name them for the cells on the top. So multiple layers, stratified, flat, squames. Stratified squamous epithelium, non-keratinized. Again, this is your esophagus. And you can see some uh, muscle in other layers. Again, not our goal for today. Here's an example of uh, the vaginal canal, the wall of the vaginal canal. This is the lumen. This is the epithelial lining of the lumen. It's attached to a basement membrane. This is the free surface. We're going to name them for the cells, at the, the nucleated cells at the surface. Why does it look kind of washed out? Because these cells were filled with glycogen, and during the processing, they kind of just kind of got washed out during the fixation and staining process. So stratified, squamous, non-keratinized epithelium. Here's our thick skin on the palms of our hands and sole of our feet. This is our free surface. This is our attachment to the basement membrane. This whole layer is epithelium. However, the most superficial nucleated layer is in this area, which is, as you guys will learn, is your stratum granulosum. It's the last layer of living cells that still have a nuclei. Cells in this layer don't have any nuclei, usually, unless there's some pathological feature going on. So we're going to not name them for down here or in here, but if you look in here, you would see they're squamous. So it's stratified squamous keratinized. This is stratum corneum. This, these are all dead cells, just packed with keratin filaments, hard um, um, different types of keratin filaments. So stratified squamous. Next one, stratified cuboidal. Pretty straightforward. Usually only two layers, maybe three layers. Usually you have a nice clean layer attached to the basement membrane. Another layer stacked right on top of it. If we look at the shape, they're going to be square. Pretty straightforward. Again, sitting on a basement membrane. Remember, these are avascular. Blood vessels are in the connective tissue. So we tend to see these in ducks, a lot of ducks for the most part. So here's an example of an eccrine sweat gland that we'll see associated with your skin. 
This is the secretory portion, and this is the duct portion. So it's a tubular gland, and the duct does a little spiral up, and it opens up on the surface of your skin. So this, you're going to have sweat produced by these secretory cells, and it's going to enter the lumen, and then it's going to get transported. Again, we're catching this. This duct is swirling up, right? So if you do a section through it, you're just catching some profiles of that duct. Again, this is a kind of a corkscrew spiral shape as it's going up. So that's why we don't usually see the whole length of it. We're just seeing little pieces of it. So if we look at that, you'll see, hey, we got a nuclei here, nuclei there. It looks stratified and attached to a basement membrane. And if you could zoom in and look at it, you would see the apical cell layer is cuboidal. So it's a stratified cuboidal epithelium lining that duct. So next one, stratified columnar. Two layers. We're going to name it for the most apical nucleated layer. So it's stratified. And if we look at this layer, cells are taller than they are wide. So it's stratified columnar. Not, again, we generally see this in ducts. Again, so it provides a barrier and con, uh, conduit. So here it is in H&E. You have, looks like we've got a couple layers of nuclei. And the basal layer is this layer here, which is attached to the basement membrane. This layer is stacked on top of it. Here's the free surface. So if you look at these cells, they're low columnar, but they're still taller than they are wide. Same if you look at some of these cells. They are taller than they are wide. So it's a stratified columnar epithelium. Now this last one is another one of the specialized type of epitheliums. We only see it when we do one system, which is your urinary or renal system. It's the lining of a lot of our renal um, or structures associated with that system. So starting in the kidney with your renal calyces, as you'll learn later, you have minor calyxes and major calyxes forming your renal pelvis, which then forms your ureter, which drains that urine down to your bladder. That's bladder is also covered by transitional epithelium. And then parts of your urethra draining your urine from your bladder out are also covered by transitional epithelium. These are hollow structures or tubular structures, so they're lined by epithelium. What's special about it is uh, it is stratified, but it has some other features about it. So it's also named uro urothelium or transitional epithelium. But what's unique about it? Think of your bladder. So if you just had a big gulp right at lunch and then you've been sitting in lecture, what happens? It's got to be able to fill, right? So it's distensible, so it can kind of stretch as it, as it fills with fluid. So these cells, when you study these in more detail, you'll see there's some unique features. There's some unique kind of membranous folds within these most apical cells, which are sometimes called dome cells or umbrella cells. So when it's empty, it might look like you might have six or eight layers of cells, but when it's distended, you might only look like you have maybe three or four layers of cells. So it can expand and contract. So that's um, one of the unique features of transitional epithelium. Sometimes you may see a cell that has more than one nuclei. So here's a look at H&E of the bladder. So it is stratified. Again, 
how many layers depends on whether it's distended or not. But the apical cells are usually pretty distinct. They kind of have this kind of dome shape or umbrella shape to them, all right? which kind of makes it a little, little more obvious. So again, only see those in the urinary bladder. Okay, so now we can kind of move on and talk about some of these specializations and, and get into um, some of our junctions and, and that sort of thing. So we know what epithelium is, what it looks like, what it, some of the functions are. So let's look at some of these features. We can get oriented. We know there's a basal surface. We got to anchor these cells to the basement membrane. There's also some infoldings. We know that they're attached to each other. So we'll see on the, some lateral specializations, junctions, proteins that are holding these cells together. And at the apical surface, we've already touched on some of these. We'll just look at them in more detail. The cilia, microvilli, or stereocilia. So cilia, we know, are motile. They're going to synchronous. They're going to move and bend, have a power stroke, and move stuff on the surface. Microvilli are little finger-like projections, so we increase surface area dramatically. And stereocilia cilia are just really long microvilli, all on the apical surface. So you guys have reviewed cilia a little bit before when we were talking about some cytoskeleton. What's unique about cilia? What forms the core of cilia? Microtubules, right? So they have a core of microtubules and motor proteins so they can move and bend. And we'll look at those in more detail. But these tend to be longer, again, than your microvilli. Again, probably up to about 10 microns in length. And the core of them is microtubules. So if you do a section through here, you can see a 9 plus 2 microtubule arrangement. Or this is the cell or the pictures we were looking at before. You can see the cilia projecting up off the top, or an SEM, that kind of hairy mohawk look of your cilia from above. So again, these are motile. We tend to see these primarily in the respiratory epithelium, but also when you get to the female reproductive tract. So our core is, if you do a section through this cilia, you're going to see a 9 plus 2 arrangement of microtubules. What does that mean? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 doublets and 2 central microtubules. So again, these are all cilia caught in cross-section. How is that different if we compare the cilia from the basal body? The basal body looks like our centrioles, because it, it should, right? That's where they arise from, and it's going to help organize those microtubules and nucleate those microtubules. So it has a different orientation. Still made up of microtubules, but it's made up of nine triplets. So we can identify those in EM as well. So if we look below the plasma membrane, we can see the nine plus zero arrangement of your basal bodies. So here's another look. This is from the uterine tube. You have some columnar cells with the, with the cilia mohawks. Again, those are motile. And you have some cells that are sometimes called peg cells. And here they are again. We're looking at the cilia. Here we can see their basal bodies really well. They're electron dense. They're anchoring those cilia into that apical plasma membrane. 
So if we would do a big section across all these cilia, it's going to look something like this, that 9 plus 2 arrangement of those microtubules. How does that differ from microvilli? What forms the core of microvilli? Actin filaments, right? So these things are much smaller. It's hard to re really even see, even at kind of high mag. just kind of looks like a little, sometimes they call it a, just a brush border or a striated border. And these are just small finger-like projections, but each cell can have thousands of them. And the core of them is made up of, again, about 20 to 30 actin filaments. And it just dramatically increases the surface area of these cells. And here's just another look at it, emphasizing microvilli and stereocilia have a core of actin filaments. And these actin filaments are anchored into this terminal web, which is made up of the actin below the plasma membrane. So here's a cross-section. This is actually a, a, a kidney tubule, proximal convoluted tubule. If you remember, these were simple cuboidal with microvilli. They have really extensive microvilli. So if you do an EM of these, all these little finger-like projections are microvilli. So if you did a section through them, they're going to look something like this. All we're seeing are these little dots are those actin filaments. Right? Um, this one's also interesting in that if you look at the basal surface, we'll come back to this later, it's thrown into all these basal infoldings that are just packed with mitochondria. There's a lot of fluid and um, ion transport occurring in these cells. So stereocilia, just to refresh, don't let the name fool you. There are no microtubules in there. It may be best to think of it as stereovilli or just really long microvilli because the core is actin. And these can be really long. These can be, again, more than 100 microns in length. And we tend to see them only in certain spots, like the male reproductive system or the inner ear. And here's an example. This is when you get to study your special senses. This is within your inner ear. You have your semicircular canals. Here's your cochlea, which is responsible for hearing. Semicircular canals are responsible for balance. Kind of looks like a gyroscope. And as fluid moves, we've, we have this membrane. It can move in response, either, again, either to acceleration or to gravity, or if you do a flip or a spin or a twist, we are going to bend these things called stereocilia with our line that we see lining these different areas of your um, semicircular canals. So we're going to bend these. And again, to keep in mind, the stereocilia the core of actin. So all of these are stereocilia. All right. Good. So I think we finally got caught up. So I've got a, another turning point for you. Let's see if anybody changes their, their answer from before.
Okay, still some debate, but I think the big answer before was four. This time, a lot of people have changed their mind. It's a stratified columnar. It's how many layers? Two or more layers? Two layers. And we name it for the apical layer, right? So these cells are taller than they are wide, and it's two layers. A little tricky, I'll give you that, but I um, wanted to give you some, it's identify, so I wanted to give you a tricky one. All right. Say that again, question? Um, different ducks, again, can, you can see it in different types of ducks, yeah, yep. Sure. How would you differentiate it from pseudostratified? Good question. So pseudostratified, it looks not just stratified, but it looks like you've got lots of layers going on there, right? You've got nuclei all over the place. Usually with stratified cuboidal and stratocolumnar, it's only two layers usually, sometimes three. But usually you'll have one layer attached to the basal membrane and then another layer just stacked on top of it. The pseudostratified, it looks like kind of a chaotic mess, right? You have a nuclei kind of all over the space. So you'll get used to identifying that kind of in relation to these other stratified ones, which you only see, usually see in ducks versus pseudostratified. And there'll be other things. We only usually see it in respiratory or male reproductive. You'll see cilia probably, right? This thing didn't have any cilia on it. So you might see some glands, you might see other things, and you'll know, hey, this is not a duct. This is not a, you'll start to kind of kind of get a little more experience with that stuff. Yep. Good question, because it is tricky. Just first time you look at it doesn't um, always seem real totally clear. Okay. Keep going, keep asking. I'll load up my next one while you... Hang on one second. I, I caught some of it and then um, didn't catch some of the other ones. Okay, now this is working. All right. Okay, sorry. Keep going now. So the ones that look uh, with cilia? From above, when you're looking at it from above? So some look hairy, kind of the long, hairy, kind of mohawk part. Uh, so like those other cells that were not ciliated, again, you could sometimes see, you might see little, tiny little microvilli on them or something, but they kind of look smooth compared to the neighboring cell because they also have those really the long cilia that are projecting off. So it's not totally smooth. Sometimes they can have little bumps or something on them, but, but compared relative to the other ones, they're, like, especially from that view, you can really kind of appreciate those two different cell types. Right? Yep. Okay. So let's keep going. I've got some clickers again ready for you. Almost. Yep. Okay.
stratified columnar. Yeah, I agree. It's tricky. It's not. It's it's uh, best way to describe it would be a low columnar. They're not super tall columnars, but they're definitely taller than they are wide, right? Especially the ones they were specifically looking at. So when you section these things, yeah, you're going to get used to. Hey, I I don't really know what's going on over here because we're catching it at this weird plane, but when we're pointing at a certain layer or a certain cell. Again, hopefully it'll be the best kind of example that we can kind of present to you because we're doing a section through it. So you're catching that duct or that tube at that particular angle. And sometimes they might look kind of cuboidal or kind of not even be able to see what they are, right? But hopefully the part we're pointing at, you can, again, kind of ignore some of the distracting stuff and focus on, on what, what the arrow's pointing at, right? But it's not easy though, right? The first time you're kind of, again, um, again, that's normal. Again, it takes a little while getting used to looking at these things. Okay, I got a couple clickers for you to get you thinking. Good. We'll come back to that. I have another one for you. All right, so both of those were asking about types of junctions, all right? Either cell-to-cell junctions or cell-to-matrix junctions. So it comes up with epithelium. It comes up when we talk about skin. It talks up, comes up again, and there are some clinical scenarios. There are some autoimmune type of diseases where these things are attacked. So we're going to start by looking at some of the junctions that are on the lateral portion of a cell. So we've got tight junctions, as the name suggests, almost kind of fusing these two membranes together. And then we have other anchoring junctions that also kind of help hold these cells together. And the third type are communicating junctions, which are gap junctions. So here's a TEM. Again, this is your free surface or apical edge. This is one cell, this is another cell. 
This is, again, the plasma membrane of one cell. Here's the plasma membrane of another cell. We're seeing some of these structures that are attaching these things together. Here's how it translates in our cartoon. So what have they done? They've just kind of cut the top off this cell. We're looking at one plasma membrane, and we're looking at another plasma membrane. And holding these things together as we work our way down from most apical all the way down to this basal surface, we're going to see tight junctions, also called zona occludens. Then we'll see some zonula adherens, which are these little belt-like adhesions. And then as we work our way down, you'll see all these little spot welds, which are desmosomes, or sometimes called macula adherens. So these are all protein-protein interactions that are forming cell-to-cell -cell junctions. Holding these cells together, it's kind of a big deal. That's how we create a lumen. That's how we prevent things from getting in between cells and how we prevent losing fluid and other stuff from, from the connective tissue out, right? So kind of important deals. So starting with your tight junctions as or zona occludens. Zone is a region, right? So it's all these anastomosing bands. And these occludens and occludens are, occludens and occludens are the trans-integral membrane proteins that are binding to each other. And again, really tight, almost nearly fusing these plasma membranes together. So if you would do a freeze fracture through an epithelial cell and look at it, you're going to see all these anastomosing bands. These are all these little zipper-like structures that are just really holding these top parts of the cell together. These are really important, these tight junctions. Again, this epithelium is trying to form a barrier in a lot of cases. We don't want things from the lumen getting through and getting into your connective tissue and your blood vessels and everything else. So these tight junctions are, again, um, really important in, in creating this, this apical zone. And in fact, they, they do. It's what really distinguishes, creates this apical surface from this other lateral surface. They're the first junctions. If you've got bacteria and stuff in the lumen, that these are preventing things from getting in between cells and coming down, right? So really important in that barrier function, preventing things from getting in between these cells that you don't want to because they're just fused together. And some cell types will have a lot more of these bands and be really, really, really tight, and some will have less, will be less tight, but they're, they're still nearly fusing these membranes together. So when we think of them, tight junctions, we're thinking our proteins, our occludins and claudins, and we're forming these really tight, almost uh, fusion of the plasma membranes with these anastomosing zippers. And there are other proteins involved. There are actually other proteins that connect these junctions to our actin cytoskeleton. So on the inner surface, this is also where we're seeing actin at the periphery or the plasma membrane of these cells. Again, supporting that plasma membrane and that cell. So if we look at it in here, again, this is the apical free surface and we're seeing these zona occludens, so nearly fusing these membranes together. And again, our cytoskeleton protein, which we link with this, uh, or associate with this junction, is actin. Now, depending on the composition of occludens and um, occludens and claudins, there still can be some 
water movement. Okay, and again, that's thought to be largely due to your clodens. They create these little channels. But again, it depends on the type of epithelium and um, how much of that is able to actually move from the lumen into that paracellular or intracellular space. So again, if we get movement between cells, that's what they call paracellular path. Things are going in between cells. Most of our linings of our tubes, we don't really want that. We want the cell to regulate what comes in. So you'll get transport across the apical surface, maybe transport out the basal surface. That's what they call transcellular. It's crossing the cellular membrane, passing through the cell, and coming back out. So again, a lot of times, that's how the cell regulates what goes in and out by these really tight occluding junctions. So things can't get through. They have to go through your transporters and your plasma membrane. All right, zonal adherens. I should say that um, clinical association with these tight junctions, bacteria do produce different toxins, sometimes called enterotoxins, that either attack your clodins and occludins, like right in this zone, or sometimes they get into cell and toxins can target, target them from this side. So these are targets of different bacterial toxins. So if you start breaking down those tight junctions, what's going to happen? They're described as kind of leaky junctions. Now things are going to really move in between cells and that transcellular pathway. You're going to lose fluid. If it's your GI tract and you all of a sudden have a lot of fluid entering the lumen of your GI tract, maybe you guys have experienced some of that since you've been in Grenada. It's called uh, Montezuma's Revenge or diarrhea, right? That could be a, um, an, a cause of concern, right? So we're losing regulation. Water's just exiting without our control in between cells. So if these tight junctions break down, again, certain toxins, cholera toxin, other enterotoxins can attack these things and make it more leaky for us. Literally leaky, so intracellular, right, and other cellular. Okay, so the other one. So if we go down those tight junctions just a little bit below it, we'll see another zone, which is what they call the zonula adherens. They also have proteins that are holding these cells together, but they're not quite as tight or quite as um, fused as, as your zonula occludens. But they're still really important. And again, these tend to be what they call cadherin family proteins. They require calcium, but they, again, we have one integral membrane protein here, one here, where they come together in that intracellular space. They're binding and holding these neighboring adjacent cells together. So they're a little bit wider. Usually we'll kind of see these different plaques on the outside. And here's the plasma membrane. Just have to really see the individual proteins. But this is one cell. This is another cell. These are also associated with our actin cytoskeleton. So again, actin's really prominent at the periphery at the plasma membrane, both with your occluding junctions and your um, adhering junctions. All right, so the next one are the macula. Macula is a spot, right? So these are little spot junctions. Almost think of it like a little spot weld where you're just... Uh, a little plaque is forming, and you're attaching these plasma membranes together. So we're looking at all these little single little circular structures, which are right down here, They're macula adherence. 
Again, just a little spot weld. It's not a big zone, just a single spot. There can be numerous of them. And how, here's how they look. So again, they're also cadherin family. These proteins are called desmocolin and desmoglines. So these are transmembrane proteins. They're interacting in that intercellular space, but they're just these little spots. And they usually will have some plaques, protein plaques on the outside, and parts of our cytoskeleton attached. In the case of macula adherens, also called desmosomes, the cytoskeletal protein are your intermediate filaments. So epithelium, these will be different types of keratins or cytokeratins that are forming these rope-like cables in the cell. And again, they're important. They're, again, kind of spanning the cytoplasm, connecting from one desmosome to another. They're kind of like these big cables, so they're going to help uh, that cell resists different types of tensions and stresses on its membrane. So here's the look. We can see all three of them again. Here's the apical surface. If we look, we can see these little finger-like projections. These are microvilli. And as we work our way down, we're going to get this most apical, really tight junction, which is your zona occludens. And as you work your way down, this will be the zonula adherens. And then we can see a couple of these spot welds, which are your macula adherens or desmosomes. And these are just other looks and other examples. Um, again, here's a higher mag. This is one cell. Here's another. This is the intercellular space. You can actually see the proteins in there. These are the plaques, and these are intermediate filaments. Okay, so another type of junction we will see often in that lateral area are the gap junctions. These are communicating junctions. They basically connect the cytoplasm of one cell to the cytoplasm of an adjacent cell. They are formed by lining up these two different channels. So each one of these is made up of different subunits. Each of these subunits is called a connexin. So we get six connexins forming a connexon in this cell. We'll have six connexins forming a connexon on this side. And when they line up, now we've got a gap junction where we're connecting the cytoplasm of two cells. So this is important in a lot of different cell types and tissue types we'll be talking about. Again, especially important in some muscle cells and nerve cells where we can transfer different ions and other molecules through these pores through these communicating junctions. And again, they can conformationally change and open and close and, and also regulate what goes through these. So this is your summary for that. So can we identify them? Do we know the components of them? Uh, where do we find them? Are there any clinical scenarios associated with them? So sometimes we will see also in the lateral part of your cell these look like infoldings. That's what they're called. Here's our plasma membrane, and it just looks like they're little folds. Just increases surface area, and some cells are really active in different types of ion transport and moving fluids from a lumen to another, to the connective tissue and vice versa. So it just increases the surface area for some of these transporters. All right, basal specialization. So we looked at the lateral, we looked at apical, we looked at lateral. Last one is the basal. We've got some junctions that attach the cell 
to the basement membrane. And there are two of them, our hemidesmosomes and focal adhesions. Now, the proteins involved in both of these are the integrin family. They're transmembrane proteins that are going to be binding to molecules in the basement membrane, holding that cell to the basement membrane or connective tissue. The first ones are the focal adhesions. So in this particular case, um, we're seeing all these little spots where we're getting these uh, focal adhesions, just smaller little, little attachments to the underlying uh, basement membrane. So again, the, we tend to see these really when we get cell motility. We're getting that protrusion. We'll put down some focal adhesions. We'll contract, protrude, attach, contract. These are going to be important during that cell motility. And important to note, the uh, cytoskeletal protein associated with these type of junctions is, again, our actin filaments. They kind of form these stress-like fibers on that bottom part of the cell. The second type of cell junction in this basal surface is the hemidesmosome. It's like half a desmosome. So those little spot wells in the lateral part were full desmosomes. In this part, it only looks like a half one because it, it kind of is. We're seeing one plaque. And again, the difference is we've got integrins again. These are binding to the uh, molecules in the uh, connective tissue. Now, we'll have our plaque. And just like desmosomes, intermediate filaments are associated with your hemidesmosomes. So if you would look, here we can see them. Here's uh, the cell membrane. And it's, you can see the connective tissue on the outside. So they're attaching that cell to the basement membrane. Here's another look. Here's your membrane. Here's your connective tissue. These are the hemidesmosomes. You've got your intermediate filaments and your plaque, and they're attaching that cell to the plasma membrane. There can be some autoimmune um, disorders where the body starts attacking some of these uh, molecules of hemidesmosomes. So what, what would happen in that case? We can't attach that epithelium really solidly to the basement membrane. It starts to blister and bulge up, right? It can't be attached, so you'll get fluid forming in there. You'll get blister forming between the epithelium and the connective tissue. And again, that's a case of bolus pemphigoid. So again, here's a little summary of those different basal surface junctions. Now, just like we had lateral infoldings, we can have basal infoldings. So remember that proximal convoluted um, tubule cell? We had microvilli at one end. Again, these are really transporting a lot of fluid. So at the basal surface, we'll see, again, all, we can kind of make out these membranes, but all these infoldings are plasma membrane, and they're packed with mitochondria. So they're producing ATP, that will energize those different transporters, and we can shuffle ions out, and water's going to fall. We can follow it, and we can move, again, fluid in from lumens into connective tissue and vice versa. So sometimes you'll see um, certain cells with these, um, again, certain tubule-like cells, or sometimes you'll see them in ducts. So, for example, striated ducts are called striated because their basal surface has all these infoldings. So just like within the kidney, kidney tubule, we can transport water. Within these ducts, 
we can transport fluid and concentrate that secretion, for example. So striated ducts are striated because they have basal enfoldings. All right. So basement membrane. The basement membrane is that interface or the structure in between the epithelium and the connective tissue below. And you'll be looking at it in more detail when, when you actually talk about connective tissue. But there are some um, structures associated with it. So when you see the term basement membrane, what you're really referring to is that attachment site for epithelium that we see with the light microscope. Just kind of looks like this amorphous band. And in some tissues, like pseudostratified ciliated columnar, it's really thick and sometimes not as thick. But it's just kind of this little, little band that this epithelium is sitting on. And sometimes it's not as distinct. So on the left is your H and E stain, your hematoxyl and eosin. doesn't always detect things in the, in the connective tissue, things that with polysaccharides, for example. H and E doesn't really distinguish it that close. So each one of these is, is a gland. We're seeing it cut in cross-section. Here's your epithelium. It should be sitting on a basement membrane. And here's the apical surface and lumen. So with H&E, we can't really see it. But with other stains, we can really highlight that now. So now with the periodic uh, acid shift stain, which targets those polysaccharides, now we can see that pink line. That's the basement membrane for the epithelium as it's stained. It's also staining these goblet cells because gob those uh, mucus granules are lots of polysaccharides in there. So they're staining bright pink. So we can use different stains to sometimes target some of these different cellular structures. When we look at it with the electron microscope, that's where you'll see the term basal lamina. Again, this is our epithelium, and it's attached to the basement membrane. But by EM, we can see two little layers. You have this clear layer, which is the lamina lucida, which appears to be an artifact as we... Um, fix and dehydrate and stain, um, it's probably not a real structure. But um, we, it does have a name and it, we can see it, so just keep in mind it might not be a real structure. And then you'll have the denser, electron-dense line, which is your lamina densa. And together, they're forming this line, again, that your epithelial cells are attaching to. And below that is your connective tissue. So other cells, besides epithelium, will sometimes have uh, a basal lamina, but they usually call it just something slightly different. So some muscle cells or adipocytes sometimes will just be called, have an external lamina rather than a basal lamina. And as you can see, there are lots of different types of molecules in this basement membrane, and you'll be talking about those in more detail as you talk about glycoproteins and proteoglycans and GAGs, and you'll fill in um, some of these names. All right, so here's another, another look at the basal lamina. This is our kidney again. This is our um, renal corpuscle. This is um, the lumen of your uh, capillary. So this, these are endothelial cells. They're sitting on a basement membrane. So these basement membranes can have really um, not just morphology, but functional components. So here's where we're getting 
our filtration of blood from inside the lumen of the capillary through the endothelial cells, through the plasma, uh, the basement membrane, and then through these cells called podocytes. And now we're creating our filtrate. So the kidneys are a really good example of um, how these basal lamina are important in uh, filtration or in the case of your lungs, it's called your respiratory membrane because gases have to go through this structure. Wow, that was fast, sorry. Didn't know it was coming. And loud. All right, how do we do this time? A little bit all over. So what are, we, what are we doing? What's really creating some of these, really almost fusing these plasma membranes together, these tight junctions, right? These, they're in the lateral side, but they're all the way up on top. They're really apical. They're what's create an apical surface and a lateral surface. They're the first junctions that can be targeted by different types of toxins and that sort of thing. They're what really help regulate that paracellular traffic. And there are different types of toxins that will target those occludins or claudins from the outside. Or if they manage to get within those epitheliums, different toxins can attack those junctions from the inside, creating these leaky um, junctions. Now fluid can just really go unregulated from connective tissue out into the lumen or vice versa. Bacteria can get in really easy then. So the answer is tight junction. Right, easy one. That's a, again, that comes up again with skin especially, but um, again, if we're attaching things, attaching that cell to the basement membrane, we should be thinking hemidesmosome. What cytoskeleton protein should we associate with hemidesmosome? Actin, microtubules, intermediate filaments. Intermediate, intermediate filaments, yep. Okay, so 
a summary of our, our glands. These are things, again, that will be coming up almost every system that, that arises, right? We're going to be talking. The two big, big types are exocrine versus endocrine. Endocrine is a whole system by itself. Endocrine hormones are produced and are secreted into the connective tissue, and then they enter the bloodstream, and then they get carried to distant areas of the body. Exocrine, they are secreted onto a surface or into a duct, okay? So we have exocrine glands and endocrine glands. We're going to be focusing on exocrine. There are three different mechanisms of secretion. One we've already talked about, exocytosis. That's how some of these cells, again, we have the regulated or uh, constitutive um, exocytosis. Another name for that is merocrine secretion. So that's probably the most common type of secretion. The other ones we see in certain spots. Apocrine secretion is where you're pinching off. Remember those blebs that were forming during apoptosis where it's a membrane-bound bleb? That's what's happening in apocrine secretion. There are certain cells and areas like in your ear or in the breast tissue, the lactating breast, where you'll pinch off and create blebs. That's an apocrine type of secretion. The other type of exocrine secretion is holocrine. In this case, there are certain glands, especially glands of your skin called sebaceous glands, that the whole cell is the secretion. So the whole cell just undergoes cell death and becomes the secretion. So those are, um, again, more limited in, in scope, and they're called sebaceous glands and often linked to those little swellings and um, infections that we sometimes get on our skin. All right. A couple of terms that come up with endocrine, again, they usually will enter the blood and get carried to long distances, but sometimes they can act on themselves, which is autocrine signaling, or on neighboring cells instead of getting transferred throughout the body. So those are our big, what we want you to be able to identify. Um, and in lab, you'll be looking at some basics of these glands, exocrine glands. So you should know what merocrine is. You should know what holocrine is. You should know what apocrine secretion is. A um, couple of things, single-celled glands we've talked about. Those are goblet cells are the classic example. It's a single cell that's just secreting mucus. And you'll see that, again, arising in lots of different tissues, mostly GI and some respiratory area. Or multicellular. So we'll get a secretory unit. And there are different t ways to classify them. I'll let you review that. Basically, we're going to name the secretory issue based on shape. So it's usually either tubular or flask-shaped. And then we'll either call it simple if it is unbranched, or we'll call it compound if the ducts are branched. So it can be simple tubular, simple acinar, compound tubular, um, compound acinar, depending on the shape. And we'll look at a few different ones. I'll let you guys review these. These are all goblet cells single cellular glands, and these are multicellular glands. Again, they're forming a secretory unit. So this is a secretory cell. Here's a cell. You can see the nuclei. You can see all these granules in there. This is from the pancreas. This is, these are exocrine. They're going to exocytosis, right? They're going to, by merocrine secretion, release these vesicles into the duct. 
those ducts are going to meet up and bring those secretions to your small intestine. So again, classic example of the exocrine serous. So again, a couple common types of glands are serous versus mucus. Serous tend to be more watery in secretion. They're not as glycosylated. Those proteins are, are, are not as slimy. They're more watery in, in nature. That's different than your mucus glands. All right? So these serous glands tend to be more uh, kind of basophilic, right? kind of purple in color. Mucus glands tend to be kind of washed out because they're producing mucus. This is more of a slimy, viscous, highly glycosylated secretion. Um, and it doesn't tend to fix or stain really well. So it kind of looks like these little washed out little marshmallows. But this is one secretory unit, and each one of these is a cell. So it's going to secrete those, that mucus into the duct. These ducts are going to meet up, form larger ducts, and release that secretion onto a surface. Sometimes you'll see both. You'll see both serous, which is more basophilic, right next to more mucus-type cells. Sometimes even within one secretory unit, you'll see some cells are serous secretion and some are mucus secretion. This is what they call a serous demiloon. You have a serous cap or a little serous half-moon cap on top of this secretory unit. And I think that is our end of the day. So again, prep for this lab. It's always good to... Review this material in advance of that lab as you go through that, that lab material. And then practice being able to actually talk about these. If you can actually talk about these slides to your group mates, that probably means, hey, you got a pretty good grasp on it. If you can't.